and welcome to the Canada's History Podcast. This is a special educator series where we speak with the finalists for the 2018 Governor General's History Award for Excellence in Teaching. Created in 1996, the award recognizes best practices in teaching Canadian history. It's an opportunity to highlight the important work that teachers and students are doing to research, interpret, and share the stories of the past. My name is Brooke Campbell, and today I'm speaking with Warren Lake, a biology and natural science teacher at Robert Thirsk High School in Calgary, Alberta. His students participated in a citizen science project with the Arctic Institute of North America. Over a 10-week period, students transcribed whaling navigator journal entries from the 1850s. They pulled out data on climate, weather, sea ice, and location to be used by researchers developing new sea ice and climate models for this time period. Thank you for speaking with us today, Warren, and congratulations on being a finalist for this year's Governor General's History Award for Excellence in Teaching. Yeah, thank you very much. It's uh, it's an honor being able to uh, be nominated and to speak to others about the project that the kids uh, participated in this last school year. Well, before we dive into hearing about your project, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your school and the students that you teach? Sure. Um, again, my name is Warren Lake. I've been uh, teaching since 1995. I started my career at the Canadian Rocky School Division and taught high school in the Canadian Rockies for 18 years, but lived in Calgary. And so I got that wonderful drive to the Rockies every day for 18 years and then had an opportunity to come back to the city to open up a new high school in Calgary, Robert Thirsk High School, um, based on a new model of high school redesign, um, building relationships with kids and interdisciplinary work and competency-based studies, um, I was able to teach biology and start a new natural science program at the school um, based on the concept of trying to reconnect kids to their natural world, especially at the high school level. Um, the program started with 10 kids um, in a small program at grade 10, and over the last five years has grown to pretty much encompass my entire workload from grade 10 right through to grade 12. So we're now running kids uh, through these five credit programs uh, uh, based on concepts like wildlife stewardship, forestry, and agriculture, um, running through the grade 10 to grade 12 level. So I think last year we ran about 150 kids through this program. So we seem to have caught a little bit of interest, which is wonderful. So these kids have kind of uh, have an opportunity to pursue their own passions and their interests in the natural world, and uh, we're making some new connections. That sounds fantastic. What a great program. It's been a lot of fun. It has been, uh, I have to learn every day. Um, and some days I'm learning as the kids are walking into the classroom. And sometimes it's, it's uh, questions that arise that become next day's lessons. So it's for me, um, it allows me to follow some new passions and uh, allows me to help uh, students follow some of their new passions when it comes to the natural world. Yes, definitely. So how did this project come about? Um, well, I've always been uh, a big fan of experiential education, trying to get the kids uh, to experience the world in as many different ways as you can and experts and access to things like historical documents and other things wherever you can um, and extended journeys. So I already have an established seven-day marine biology program out to Bamfield uh, every other year, but I was looking for a piece in between. And I've always believed that one of the areas in Canada that's underappreciated and that needs a little bit more exposure is the Canadian North, so I was looking for an opportunity to take kids to the North, 
So I had a friend uh, in the social studies department that gave me a name, Mike Maloney, from the Arctic Institute of North America at uh, the University of Calgary. And I followed the name and it led to a conversation in his office at the University of Calgary that has now led to the beginnings of an Arctic expedition in May of 2019 up to Kluwani Lake in the north. And as we're having that conversation, he had colleagues wander into the office going, what's he doing here? What are you guys talking about? And one of those gentlemen was uh, Matthew Eyre. And Matthew said, listen, I've, I've got this project I'm working on, the North Seas Project, and I'm transcribing um, whaling journals from Bowhead Whaling in the 1850s in the North Seas off the east coast of Canada. And uh, is there any way that that would fit into your program? And I looked and I went, that's perfect. That's a beautiful introduction to climate change and climate modeling and conversations about our changes in wildlife at the grade uh, grade 10 level in natural science. And we opened up a conversation and that conversation led to a semester long, a two semester long project with uh, Matthew and his work on the North Seas Project. So it was uh, one of those serendipitous moments where you're in the right place, right time, and uh, you open up those conversations with the right people and it leads to some pretty amazing projects. Work. Yeah, it sounds like that collaboration has been uh, has been amazing for you and for your students and for the for the researchers themselves too. Yeah, and just uh, the access and that citizen science aspect, the opportunity to have a group of students that are that are available to participate in this research, and you know, and it, I mean, it's even led. We've got a planting project right now at Kluani where we flew up uh, tomato plants. Um, up to the north and we're comparing the growth of station to a set of tomato plants that are growing on the roof. That's another set of researchers at the Arctic Institute that figured that a group of kids could have participated in another project. So those are kind of the important things with these projects is just to make sure that you keep those conversations going. And like I say, you follow that that one conversation piece of that one name and you never really know where it's going to lead. And this Northern Seas Project was a real eye-opener for the kids. It it started very different for them and ended very different for them. And the eye-opening moments in it and the I get it now moments from this project were pretty spectacular. So what exactly did your students do for the North Seas Project? So the idea was that Matthew, um, the researcher that we were working with, um, was looking to build new climate models uh, for climate data in that period of time in the mid-1800s from 1850 into that 1851-52-53 period and was using the bowhead whaling uh, journals. Uh, He had access to these historical navigator journals. Um, that really no one had looked at, or he figures no one's looked at in over a hundred years. And the navigator journals basically had hints or climate hints that allowed him to potentially build a new model, never, never seen before, of where the ice shelves were in that particular period of time. As it turns out, bowhead whales feed on, on plankton that basically grow along the edges of the ice shelves. So by following and taking the climate data and the, and the hunting cues from the navigator journals, the kids were able to figure out where they were catching whales, which would give us geographic locations and would allow him to start building new maps to where the ice shelves were in those particular periods of time. And as it turns out, he was able to take the data that the kids were able to transcribe and was able to produce new beginning models at the Arctic Conference that happened in Quebec City in 2018. So the kids got to see and know that their work was being used and presented on the international uh, international uh, platform or stage um, for people to see this new data. 
So the, the basically a walkthrough of the project is we needed to introduce the kids very briefly to some of the terminology and the concepts that go with climate change because climate knowledge scattered across the grades is different and spotty and, and those kind of things. So we needed to make sure that we were on the same page. And one of the things is the kids were very surprised that they didn't know where their models were coming from. They just, this is the model, climate change is a reality, and just you know, trust in the numbers. And this was an opportunity to see them where some of those numbers actually come from. And that was the access to these historical documents. So having access to these documents through the, the Arctic Institute, and especially through Matthew, and being able to show them that this is the kind of data, this is the kind of knowledge pieces that go to build new data was pretty cool. So we had some initial conversations just about climate literacy terms, terminology, their understanding. And then Matthew came in and did a presentation on his work. Um, and not only his work, per se specifically, but his work as a researcher and his passions as a researcher and that these historical documents are brought to life by people that actually do this kind of research. So it's not a dead, it's not a dead area of science. There are people that are actively using these historical documents to further our current knowledge. So he was able to express that passion as a researcher. He gave them the background on the North Seas project and what he was trying to work towards in terms of his climate modeling, and then was able to give them some background on things like the bowhead whaling trade. Uh, most kids didn't even know that bowhead whales were a creature. So they were, you know, we always talk about humpback whales or, or gray whales, those kind of things. So the bowhead was a new one for them. And then looking at that particular piece of area in Canada up off the East Coast, again, was a little distant for them. So they were learning a little bit more about um, where the bowhead whale were being hunted, why they were being hunted. So there was that historical context, which then led to some really rich conversations about, you know, where our current whaling trade is. You know, uh, it led to looking at, are they a protected species? Are they, are their populations stable? So even that historical piece and then led to some current conversations. And then that conversation led to the necessity of creating new models. So we don't have models for, for a lot of these things from the 1850s. So where are we going to get our data from? Um, so it was an opportunity then to introduce these journals and, and look and basically work with the kids saying, what are the climate cues that we can pull out of this data? So yes, where did they catch whales? Are we able to figure out their geographic location when they do that? What was the wind like? What was the weather like? So he went over all of the terminology that he was looking for the kids to watch in their transcriptions. And then the fun part, the kids got a chance to have a look at these journals. Um, and there were a number of different vessels that we looked at. So we were looking at the True Love 1, the True Love 2, the True Love 3, and 4. And then we looked at the Esquimalt. So anywhere between dates of 1859 up to 1872. And the first thing that the kids looked at is they went, what is this written in? And we were like, it's English. And they're like, but it's all cursive. And this is a generation of kids now where cursive writing is starting to disappear. So one of the first historical lessons that we had to do is how to read cursive writing. So the first two or three times that we didn't even really get a lot of work done, it was simply sitting around in groups with Matthew and myself and working our way through what is that word, uh, try and figure out that word, try and figure out the context of that word. So the first couple of our transcription periods, or basically the idea of the project at this point was, once we can get past the curse of language, we need to transcribe every single one of these entries 
and Matthew had created an Excel spreadsheet that the kids could then enter the climate pieces that they were finding as they went along that he could then use as data points to log potentially where these ice shelves were based on this data. So the kids had to get past the curse of writing. And then we started discovering kind of that problem-solving aspect. Great, you're starting to read these. How are you going to start to collect? What's your problem-solving process in getting that data onto a page? So basically from from mid-October right through until December of 2018, we set aside 75-minute periods where the kids had access to the journals and just continued their work basically transcribing as they went along. And it was really cool to see the, the the kids' different approaches. Um, that they brought to bear on one, trying to read the language, and then two, trying to organize this data so that it was meaningful to them. And then throughout that, it was interesting because originally it was just words on a page. And then the kids started to wake up to the fact that they were reading somebody's handwriting that was over 100 years ago. And this was an active experience. This was not just somebody taking weather cues. This was somebody recording events that were actually happening, happening in that historical past. So their whole mindset started to change as they recognized that these journals weren't just a physical object, but a reflection of a historical past of a person that were actually writing these documents. So then the data became much more meaningful to them. Um, and then kids started to come up with different processes. And by the end, um, where the process at the beginning had been quite... Um, I don't know what the best word for that would be, kind of shotgunning different things and pulling different data out. They started to transcribe the paragraphs as a whole. So before they even pulled any data out, they begin to transcribe and basically just turn the whole paragraph into something that they could read and understand. And then they were able to pull the data from it. And again, it suddenly opened up an entirely different story. And you could hear kids in different groups as they found different things. Um, and, and kids would come over and see what are they, what's happening on your boat, what's happening on my boat. And these were different months of the year. And everybody's excited when they found whales or did they get the whale that day? And they were always looking for a little whale tails. Whale tails indicated that they'd actually caught a whale on that day. So kids were comparing which boats were more successful and those kinds of things. So there was a real investment into what they were doing that grew from the beginning of the project to the end. And then, like I say, the data was taken and culminated in Matthew presenting this new partial model to the Arctic Institute or the Arctic presentation in the Quebec City, the conference in 2018. Um, and the kids were filmed and some of their pictures were highlighted in the presentation at this conference and the kids were just amazed. They didn't realize that the work that they had been doing was actually going to lead to a formal presentation. So we finished that project with the first group of kids by celebrating um, and actually having a dinner uh, cooked by our kitchen of famous or um, favorite meal items from a Gator's journal from his mom's favorite recipes from the 1850s. Um, and our kitchen was wonderful enough to cook it up. And then the kids were able to watch the film uh, that was put together for the um, for the Arctic Institute, highlighting the work that they were doing in Quebec City. And they were able to eat some of the food that sailors would have loved in that particular period of time and celebrated. And it really hit home to them that this citizen science piece and this, ac this uh, access to these documents was more special than they had envisioned um, way back in September when the project started. And then we repeated this with another group of students in the second semester from February until May with a slightly different uh, vessel and a different period of time. And again, the impacts on this second group of kids was just as strong as the impact was on that first group of kids. Does that, I think, cover a pretty good little synopsis of the project? Yeah, the project sounds amazing, like so hands-on. And like you were saying, it's really meaningful for, for the students. 
Yeah, it was neat to watch them evolve as the project went along from just kind of a reading exercise that was a challenge to where they were pulling out the valid points, but also understanding the historical relevance of what they were actually doing. And then there was there's some really telling moments when kids walked up and just kind of said, I, I get it. I, I truly understand what we're doing now, and I, I get the relevance of what we're doing. And it was a pretty cool opportunity. It was an opportunity that's pretty rare sometimes for them to actually have their hands into these documents and to be able to see that, well, it makes that history piece come alive to them. It's not just reading out of a textbook anymore. You've got your hands right on it. You're able to flip through these things. And then they were looking for those kind of those personal elements because they recognized that these were written by people. Um, so they were looking for those those quirky little differences between this navigator on this boat and this navigator on that boat kind of idea. Yeah, definitely. How did you really encourage your students to look beyond the scientific data then? Well, a lot of these are what, as a teacher, one of the things that I find is sometimes it's not the conversations that you have when you're dead and on stage in front of kids. It's what I call the sidebar conversations. These are those, just those, you sit down next to a kid and just have a very casual conversation. And these are the, these are where you really get your insights from kids. Um, they, they, once they're comfortable enough and they've done the project enough and long enough with you or have been with you long enough, they really do open up and give you an idea of what their thought processes are. And, and to watch some of these who started maybe a little tentative, well, this is just another project and this is a lot of work. It suddenly became, you know, some of those kids that can sometimes be the most challenging were the ones that wouldn't want to put the journals down at the end. I mean, a 75 minute period, they go, seriously, our class is over right now. When are we doing this again? The minute you can have a kid ask you, when are we doing this again? You have struck a note in so many ways, as opposed to this is just a piece of work that we have to accomplish. And granted, we have to assess this work. Um, you know, nothing in education ever comes for free. So we have to create some assessment. The assessment was not something that stood in their way. They weren't too worried about the assessment. They were they were more invested in trying to figure out how to handle the historical documents in front of them and how really with Matthew, they became they became quite invested in Matthew's work. They really wanted to provide him data that he was able to use. So they focused their time and attention on it because they knew it wasn't just a Mr. Lake project. They knew it was a really important piece of work to continue this gentleman's research. And they invested themselves. And Matthew was wonderful. I mean, he was able to come out and he struck a different chord with kids. So we wouldn't work together. We would float the room separately. We wouldn't just because the kids would get very different things from us in terms of context which was great because basically you have two different stories that are being told. He's got all of that wealth of research knowledge and that background, and I'm kind of the generalist that's wandering around and touching base on things and putting things in perspective based on the relationships that I have with those students. Yeah, that sounds like a great way to collaborate and pr- bring in those different perspectives into the into the story and into the analysis. Yeah, that collaboration piece is key. I mean, we talk about the word collaboration and interdisciplinary, and we those are kind of the catchphrases that we use all the time. But to incorporate them and use them in a seamless manner, um, that's a lot of fun. Um, and being able to, like I say, bring in a researcher of that caliber and share them with the kids and then be able to have those sidebar conversations and all of the other conversations that happen outside of that invested period of time that you have. So granted, you you give that time, but there are conversations that happen beyond those periods of time. And I still have kids uh, at the end of the year, we're talking about how much fun they had. So it it had, it, it, it got into their psyches. It got, it got into them. It wasn't just something that they did put aside, we're done and we moved on. It's something that they've kept, which is pretty cool. 
Yeah, you mentioned that making an, an interdisciplinary project um, is, is a little bit challenging at times um, to make it seamless. Yeah. Can you speak to some of those challenges and also to the benefits that come from, you know, integrating, you know, subject matter from a variety of fields? You know, absolutely. Well, um, I mean, we talked about this citizen science aspect and citizen science aspects and then and getting a hold of these historical documents is time consuming. Um, one of the biggest challenges, and I, you probably will get this from any teacher that's done this before, is that investment of time, given the time constraints that we have in the educational world, can always be our biggest, I don't have the time. It's always easy to say that you don't have the time. The biggest challenge is to be able to invest in that time. And that time requires dedication of hours of both your class time, the, the time that you have in front of your kids, but also the time that you're not with your kids, but just all the planning and the implementation and the commitment that you have in order to make these projects work. So there's a lot that goes on outside of those class times. So one of the biggest challenges with any interdisciplinary is that you're going to have to invest time as a teacher outside of the classroom. So there were many hours of conversation that Matthew and I would have had. And how do we want to get this to kids? What's the most important things? How do we want them to invest in it? Where do we think the journey is going to go? So we had 8, 10, 12 hours of just pre-planning before we'd even seen a group of kids. And that involved summer. A lot of this project started in the summer prior to seeing kids in September. So there's those kind of those commitment of time. And then simply the physical commitment of time that you have to say, okay, I'm going to need 10 75-minute blocks of tier periods with kids. Well, in any teacher's world, a 75-minute period of time once to take away is a big commitment, let alone 10 blocks of time, given some of the things that you have to work and teach your kids. So that's always a big one. And then the one piece that we always sometimes forget is we need to block off some time to celebrate. Quite often these projects end and we never get a chance to really celebrate and reflect with our kids. So that celebratory piece has to be blocked in. So great, we had 10 blocks of time with kids. We needed an 11th block of time so that we could celebrate with these kids to show them the impact of their work and to celebrate their efforts and to be able to, to reflect on the importance of what they've done. The second biggest challenge with any interdisciplinary project is try to figure out how you're going to frame this for kids. Um, so for, in my context, a natural science teacher working with historical documents, it fit really well because these were bowhead whaling journals. So there was a natural fit, but sometimes you have some pretty disparate, you know, like you've got a social studies teacher working with a math teacher. Then how do you put those things together and how do you frame that context together so that the kids don't get lost in it? The kids can start to see the connections that you would like them to make, but you're not forcing them to make those connections. We want them to have a journey to do this. And at the same time, we teach an ever-changing group of students, and especially at the high school level, trying to find ways of making this project relevant to students so that they see the context and they see where we'd like them to go, but we want them to get there on their own. That can be quite challenging when you try to do interdisciplinary work because it's quite often outside of your teacher's purview. So you might not be an expert in a particular portion of this project, but you have to be willing to collaborate and work with others and become not only the expert in your field, but be able to support students in that other field as they're working through the journey together. I mean, the benefits... It, the benefits for me is that it no longer becomes just about the science. We're no longer just, it's not just about science data points that allow us to build a new model. It's all of those conversations, those rich conversations that come from them figuring out, I get it. I now know where these models come from. These models are not just some guy writing numbers on a sheet and going, here it is, and it's yours. 
And then that access to historical documents, we don't recognize quite often where a lot of our knowledge comes from. So in the natural science program, we quite often talk about, well, why do we know what's happening with this right now? So the history comes out quite often in, in the natural science classroom as a story. So the storytelling aspects of this project were pretty cool. Um, the kids were actually doing separate research, unbeknownst to me, where they're actually going online and they were doing scans and trying to find out more about the companies that were sending these vessels out. They were trying to find out whether there were different companies that were competing with one another. They were looking for things that I wasn't even suggesting. So that, that, that access led them to research that was interesting on theirs. So these, these projects have to be open enough that the kids can pursue passions outside of what we're studying, but still have to be planned tightly enough that you hit the outcomes and the competencies that you would like the kids to do. So our competencies for this particular project were getting them to develop critical thinking skills and problem-solving skills because they had some things that we were throwing at them that weren't something that they were just getting in any regular class. So the benefits are just that growth that you have in kids and the fact that you're bringing in experts that are outside of your field. So I had other teachers that would come and visit when we had these projects and they would wander around and talk to kids and then they would come back and they would give me observations of what they had seen. So it was drawing in even teachers from other areas as they were finding out that they were doing this and ultimately led to different connections. This uh, Matthew and Mike Maloney came in and we, uh, we organized through the social studies department. We organized another Arctic Institute uh, presentation looking at Arctic sovereignty um, so it led to offshoots and has led to more conversations. So the project itself, it does what you need it to do, but it has all these little offshoots because of that interdisciplinary and that collaborative model that lead to, as it turns out, have led to many different connections and a really strong connection with Robert Thirsk High School with the Arctic Institute of North America. And well, that, that relationship will continue. So I think the challenge is, you know, they're there. Um, most of them would be that time and that framing, but the benefits outweigh the challenges in so many ways. Um, it's worth your time as a teacher to pursue these, given that you're going to have to understand you're going to lose some of that time outside of class in order to do this as well as that fixed investment of time within the classroom. Thank you. That's fantastic. What advice would you give to other teachers then who want to provide an experiential learning opportunity for their students? Well, I mean, the first is always find the time. Always find the time for these projects. And I know that we're all busy. Um, we all have lives and we do those things. But again, the benefits that you get from these projects, both from the learning that happens as a teacher and the learning that you see happen to your students is worth that investment of time. Um, keep your eyes open. Um, like I say, this was very serendipitous. This was me being provided one name. Um, and I, I, I could have had that name in a folder or a file for years and never done anything with it. I picked up the phone, made that first initial phone call, set up that first meeting. And then from that meeting and that collaboration that occurred, we ended up with a series of projects that are now occurring. So it's that keeping your eyes open for those potential opportunities and being, being willing to follow up on them when they come. And some of them don't lead anywhere. Some of them are wonderful conversations that don't lead to anything significant in terms of project work. They're nice conversations, but you never know where those conversations are going to go. And sometimes we're a little bit leery. That's that risk-taking aspect of things. We're a little leery of putting ourselves out there sometimes just to follow up. Well, I don't know this person. What's going to happen? Those kinds of things. Um, continue to create new opportunities. So as, as 
yes, some of this stuff will come to you. All of us have our own creative passions and our ways of looking at things, and we have our own passions that should allow us to create new opportunities for students. And then, you know, be realistic. There's only so many projects that you can possibly plan. So this natural science program has allowed me to basically look at a project every year. What am I going to do with my kids this year? It's been a wonderful opportunity for me to be able to take you know, the project that we have coming up for next year was an idea that I got from a student three years ago. So you log those ideas, you log those things that you have, those conversations that you have with kids, and at the right time, at the right moment, suddenly those projects fit. That group of students that you have in front of you or that uh, the time opportunities that you have, et cetera. And then just find experiential opportunity, uh, learning opportunities um, that feed the teacher. Um, as much as we're there for the kids, um, as teachers, we, we're, we're kind of expected. I don't even like the word expected. I just hope it's kind of that way across the boards is that we're, we're allowed to pursue our own passions with our kids. And if our kids see that we're really passionate about what we do, and that is shown in some of these experiential learning opportunities, the kids see that there's a lot out there in the world. So the Banfield Marine trip that I take with kids, the kids see me for seven days in an environment that they don't see. And they're like, you like this stuff. I'm like, well, as much as I like taking you guys on experiential educations, I need to be fed from these things too. So a lot of these opportunities give teachers an opportunities to fuel themselves um, and to, to feel that they're able to learn in an environment similar to the environment that their students are learning in. So those are a couple of pieces that I would recommend in terms of advice if you want to um, create these experiential learning opportunities. Yeah, that's great advice. And I think it speaks to educators in any context, not just in a in a secondary high school environment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we sometimes forget we, we teach in these little bubbles, you know, high school, middle school and elementary school. But when you start to talk to people across across those, you find out that the passions are very similar amongst educators. Um, I mean, we teach very different groups of kids. Um, and they all come with different different aspects. But um, yeah, I think we're all similar in that it's not, it's, yeah, it's, it's a career and it's a really important job. And I think, I think just educators by themselves have this niche that's just so important, but it's important sometimes to remember that as educators, we need to, we need to be invested for our own, for our own sakes in what we do. And that, that comes out in our passions um, for what we teach and for the students that we get to work with and the opportunities that we get to provide these students. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share this project with us. And once again, congratulations on being a finalist for this year's award. Oh, thank you very much. Always uh, always an honor when these things occur. A total pleasure being able to talk about the work that uh, Matthew brought to us through the Arctic Institute and that the work of my students were able to accomplish in their transcription project.